Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Lord God, you, you give us stern words, severe words in your Bible that we may be helped. And Lord, as we look at this passage tonight, as heavy as it is, I pray that you would help us from it. You are a kind and loving God. And you are a just God. And I pray that we would worship you for both your kindness and for your justice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know what a refuge is? A refuge. A refuge is a safe place that protects you from harm. It's a place that you can go to and you will be spared from disaster. You can hide out during the trial. Where I'm from, Indiana, in the United States, during this warmer, stormier months, we will often have these things called tornadoes, which are windstorms that will pass through. They're terrifying. You'll have these clouds coming down, spinning around, able to lift an entire house off of its foundation, destroying towns and villages as it passes. You can be sitting in your house and all of a sudden you'll hear the tornado sirens going off, warning there's one coming. It's been spotted. And in that moment, you'd better find a place of refuge to be able to hide to wait out the storm. A refuge is only as safe and reliable as the security that it provides. If a refuge doesn't keep you safe, it's not actually a refuge at all. And so when you're sitting there in Indiana and you hear the sirens going off, you have a choice that you need to make. Which room are you going to to be safe? In that moment, you, you may choose to go to the cold, hard, uncomfortable spot of your house against a solid wall. You'll be uncomfortable for maybe two hours, but then you'll be safe after the storm. 
Or you may choose to go to the luxurious bedroom with your soft pillows and your bed sheets in the upstairs of your house. And you may be comfortable for two hours, but if the storm hits, you will die because you prioritize the wrong things in the storm. James 5 is like a tornado siren going off, shouting out, warning, where is your refuge? There is a storm coming. Where are you going to hide? Where we take refuge will determine whether we make it through the storm that James is talking about. So we're going to walk through James 5, 1 through 6, and we're going to have a very simple outline. We're asking four questions that you can ask virtually any text in Scripture. First, who is James talking to? Second, what does he say? Third, why does he say it? And fourth, how should we respond? Who is James talking to? What does he say? Why does he say it? And how should we respond? Who is James talking to? We've seen throughout the book of James, we've been working through it this summer, that James has different audiences in mind that he'll speak to. Last week, James was speaking to those who said, Today, we're going to do this or that. They're making plans for the future. And he says, come now, you who say this. This week, James is addressing different folks. He's not addressing necessarily the same people, though they may include. James is addressing a new set of folks, the rich. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich. When James is talking about the rich here, James is not just talking about people who have a lot of money. That's not who the rich are in the book of James. When James is talking about the rich, he's talking about people who have a lot of money and who put their hope in that money, who live for that money. All throughout this section, really throughout the book of James itself, we see references and allusions to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus says this. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus talks about what it looks like to lay up treasures on earth and what it looks like to lay up treasures in heaven. And now listen to how James describes these rich people. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Moth and rust destroy. Your gold and silver have corroded. You have laid up treasures in the last days. James is talking about the people that Jesus is telling us not to be like. Don't store up treasures on earth. Those are the rich who James is talking to, the ones who do store up treasures on earth. The rich that he's addressing are those who put their hope in earthly, temporary treasures. The treasure that they've laid up for the last days 
isn't treasure that's going to endure. It's earthly treasure, temporary. It's earthly riches that can become rotten and moth-eated and corroded. So James is speaking here to rich people who put their hope in their riches, who are living for their riches, who determine their value and significance based upon their possessions. That's who he's talking to when he says rich. But there's more. There's more that we can learn about these people. They're not merely wealthy people who are putting their hope in their wealth. They're not just putting their hope in the wrong thing, but they're also getting their riches in the wrong way. They're not just storing up treasures on earth, but they are oppressing their laborers in order to do so. James describes them, and likely these are people who they would be as wealthy landowners who would have fields, and they would hire out day laborers to come and to work the field. We see that throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus would talk about parables of laborers coming into the harvest, being paid for the work that they do based upon the time of the day they come in. These are likely rich people who are hiring workers for the day, but what are they doing to those workers? They're not paying them. They're defrauding them. They're having them produce a harvest, but they're not giving them an appropriate wage for them. Verse 4 says they kept the wages back by fraud. Verse 6 says that they condemned and they murdered the righteous person. So the problem is not that these people are rich and other people are poor. That's not what James is getting at. He's not saying you're rich, rich is bad, poor is good. Well, the problem is these rich people have gotten this way because they have oppressed the poor. They have made their money unjustly on the backs of the poor. And this fits with what we've already seen in the book of James. Earlier on in chapter 2, when James is teaching on partiality, he shows the foolishness of trying to please the rich. And he says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? the ones who drag you into court. These are not merely rich people. These are oppressors. Some of you know people like this. Some of you may work for people like this. I pray that none of you are people like this. I've heard far too many stories during my time in the UAE to think that what James is talking about is a distant past. This happens today. We have all heard stories, I'm sure. Someone signs a contract saying that they'll be paid a particular wage, and then money gets tight, and the business goes one month, two months, three months, four months, with not paying what was promised. And yet this person is still going to work day in and day out, earning a profit for the company, but not receiving appropriate wage for it. The company is not honoring their end of the contract, but you'd better believe that the company is expecting the person to honor their end of the contract. And like the rich, the company will drag them to court if the person threatens to cancel. They'll say, well, you won't get your gratuity, or we're not going to we're not going to give you your plane ticket home or we're going to hold on to your passport. 
The Bible calls that oppression. It's wrong. And God hates it. James is talking to the oppressive rich who are storing up earthly treasures for themselves. They are getting rich unjustly off the backs of others. They are taking refuge in their riches. So that answers our first question. Let's move on to the second. What does James say? And it only gets heavier. Judgment is coming. That's what James is telling them. Listen to the entirety of verse 1. We read the first few words. Listen to the entirety of it again. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Miseries are coming to these rich people. Painful, terrifying misery. The riches that they have stored up for themselves on earth will actually be evidence against them, condemning them, showing them that they are worthy of judgment and condemnation. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. It will show that you valued the wrong things and will eat your flesh like fire. What James is saying to these rich, these oppressive treasure set on earth rich is that they will suffer the judgment of God forever. This is called hell. James is saying that the rich, the oppressive treasure set on earth rich are going to hell. Hell is a place and hell is an experience. We don't often like to think about hell. I'm not sure I've preached on hell before. It's not a subject that our minds go to, but it is a reality, and the Bible talks about it. In their book, What is Hell?, Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson, two scholars, summarize the Bible's teaching on hell with five descriptions. Hell is punishment. It's judgment for sin. You go to hell because you deserve to go to hell. There are no innocent people in hell. It's punishment that is appropriate. Second, hell is banishment. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are no pleasures in hell. You have been removed from the blessing of God and have been banished to the outer darkness. It's the ultimate exile. Hell is also, third, a place of suffering. It's described as a place of torment, of misery. We see that even in James. The images that are used to describe hell are terrifying. It's the outer darkness. It's the unquenchable fire. There's gloom and darkness. There's fire, but it produces no light to see. It only burns your body. Fourth, hell is destruction. Hell is the ceasing to become a person with never actually stopping being a person. You are eternally destroyed. 
because fifth, hell is forever. It is the place, as Jesus says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's the place where those who are in it, in Revelation it says, they are tormented day and night forever. Hell is not a popular subject to talk about. It's not a delightful subject to meditate upon, but it is a real subject. And we need to be confronted with the reality, especially when the Bible talks about it. You can't close your eyes and ignore it. You can't walk through life enjoying 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years forgetting that hell exists. Otherwise, you will have stored up treasures on earth that will be evidence against you. Hell is a tornado of judgment that's coming your way, and unless you hear the sirens and find your place of refuge, you will experience it forever. This is what awaits the oppressive rich. Apart from repentance, they are going to hell. They have sinned against God, they have sinned against their fellow man, and they will pay for it forever. Their precious goods and silver Their gold and silver becomes fuel for the fire that eats their flesh. Their earthly luxury and self-indulgence, it only makes them more prepared for the slaughter, fattening them up. The oppressive rich need to know that hell is coming for them. That's what James says. Third, why does he say it? Why does James give such a strong warning to the oppressive rich? There's a number of ways we could answer that question. We could look at it and we could say, well, first, they need to know it. Why is he telling them? Because they deserve it. If God is just, then sin must go punished. It cannot go unpunished. Different cultures can sometimes contrast a God who loves people and sends everyone to heaven with a God who pours out his wrath on some in hell. A God who sends people to hell is thought to be of a mean and angry God, whereas the God who sends everyone to heaven would be a kind and a loving God, a generous God. I mean, how many people throughout the years. Some of you may be here today, and you've stumbled over the doctrine of hell. How could God do that? Doesn't this feel unloving? The reality that James shows us is that it's actually unloving to overlook sin. It's actually unloving to allow for sin to go unpunished. Without punishment for sin, there's no genuine love because there's no genuine justice. So I have two daughters. Imagine that I came home from work one day and I have two gifts. And I give one to my oldest daughter and I give another to my younger daughter. And I give them these two gifts and I say, children, I love you. You're my children. I love you. I've given you these gifts. Then my oldest daughter uses her strength and her size to beat up my youngest daughter. She pushes her to the ground. She takes the gift for herself. She threatens her. 
She says, if you ever try and take it back, I'll do even worse to you. This one's mine now. My youngest daughter, of course, she would come to me and she would have tears in her eyes telling me what just happened. And what's she going to say? Daddy, do something. She has my present. I have none. If I were to look at my youngest daughter and look at her right in the eyes and say, sweetie, I love you so much. I love all my children so much. It would not be very kind or loving of me to punish your sister. That would bring her pain, right? That would maybe even hurt her feelings, right? That wouldn't be a a kind thing to do to punish your sister. That would be a mean thing to do. I love you and I love your sister, so I can't punish your sister. If I said that to my daughter, she would have every right to look me back in the eyes and say, but that's not loving me. You're overlooking my pain. You're overlooking the sin against me. You might be acting like you love my sister, but you don't love me because she's just going to run all over me again. You've taken her side. That's not kind. That's not loving. Why would you do that, Dad? A God who overlooks sin is not a loving God. A God who overlooks sin is a monster. The God of universalism that says that everything will work out well for every person in this world, regardless of what they have done, is at best weak, and at worst an oppressor himself, because he joins the side of the oppressor. A loving God punishes sin as sin. It recognizes the genuine hurt and pain that has been experienced, and it judges it as wrong, as justice. James is saying what he says to the rich because they need to know they deserve what's coming to them. But that's not the only reason why James is saying it. James says this to the rich to warn them. And in this way, this is the kindest thing that James could say to them. James wants the rich to know that their earthly prosperity is temporary. He wants them to know that their phones and their cars and their retirement accounts and their houses, those are no refuge for them at all from the judgment that's coming. He wants them to know that their unjust, oppressive actions are noticed by God. Verse 4, Behold, the labors, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James wants them to know that the way they treat people in this life will carry on into the next life. They've been treating their laborers and their workers as if they have all the power and that they are not going to give an account for it. And James says that's wrong. There is a God who notices 
and he hates injustice, and he will judge. And he wants them to know this for their eternal good. You see, James didn't have to warn the rich at all. James could have kept his mouth completely shut and let the rich go on enjoying 80 years of prosperity to spend eternity in hell suffering for their sins, but he doesn't do it. He takes up the mantle like the Old Testament prophets that we read in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, and he calls out against the people so that they would hear, turn, and repent. James pleads with them, Look through the false promise of security. Don't think that what makes you rich now will make you rich forever. See through the false promises of security when you say no one's going to notice what I'm doing. After all, this person has no influence. What are they going to do? Tell on me? Don't believe that lie. The God of the universe sees. Look past your temporary gain that comes from oppression. See the righteous elevated while you suffer for your sins in hell. James pleads with him, earthly money and earthly power are false refuges. They will not endure the tornado that's coming your way. And as you read through the whole book of James, as you read through the whole New Testament, you see these things are false refuges But there is another refuge that will endure and that will last. There is a refuge that you can run to and be safe from the judgment that is coming. God is just and he must punish sin. No sin will go unpunished and no one will be able to accuse God of injustice. But God made a way for the oppressive rich and for all of us. That if we turn to Jesus in faith, all of the punishment that we deserve will be put upon him. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a turning away of wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier, righteous and making many righteous of the one who has faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you are an oppressive rich or whether you are a sinful and rebellious poor, Christ Jesus stands as your refuge that you can run to and be safe. Every one of us today has sinned enough to damn us to eternity in hell. Every one of us. We have rebelled against the perfect, holy, righteous God, and we deserve to pay for those sins. But through faith in Jesus, What Christ does is he stands between us and the storm of judgment and all the weight of hell breaks against his body as we cower and hide behind him knowing that it is terrifying but that we are safe. 
and his body is broken, and his blood is spilled, and we walk out on the other side alive because we took refuge in Christ. Because we saw through the lies of earthly riches and prosperity and turned to Jesus. The oppressive rich need to know they deserve judgment so that they can run to Christ. Just like every one of us. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. So how should we respond? What are we supposed to do with these hard words that James says? I think there's four ways that every one of us, rich or poor, can respond. The first is, don't set your hope on riches. Don't take refuge in riches. You don't have to be rich to set your hope on riches. There are many people who don't have a Durham to their name who think, if I only had money, I would be fine. Don't set your hope on riches. This is a false hope. The Bible teaches it's not wrong to be rich, but it is wrong to set your hope on riches and to live as if your security, as if your eternal future depended upon your earthly stuff. And the way in which we can tell. So how do I know whether I'm setting my hope on riches? Is by looking at what we do with the possessions and the riches that we have. Listen to how the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. How are they to be rich? To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The rich in this present age are not rebuked for being rich, but they are charged to pursue genuine riches. To be rich in good works and to use the riches that they have to be generous and share with those in need. When we give our money away, when we give our possessions away, when we treat our stuff lightly for the sake of other people, we show that it is not a refuge. We're not holding on to it for our protection and for our security. We're letting it go because we recognize that we have another refuge that we can run to and be safe. Don't set your hope on riches. Second, we can respond to this text by pursuing justice. That's one thing that James is doing here is he's calling sin, sin. He's saying that practice, wrong. By doing so, he's encouraging justice. It's true, James is mostly concerned here about eternal realities, about eternal justice that will be poured out on the rich. But we can't read these verses and think that he doesn't care about the experience of the poor, about the oppressed. While justice may never be perfected in this life, it ought to be pursued in this life. 
What this means first and foremost is that we should pray to God for justice now. We should pray to God to do what is just and right when we see wages that are being withheld, when we hear stories about people being treated unfairly, when we hear about Christians being persecuted. We should cry out to God in prayer. God, notice, look, pour out justice, God. We read this last week when we looked at prayer and planning. Jesus says in Luke 18 that God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. But there's another way that we can pursue justice, and that is by defending the cause of the oppressed. Some of you in this room have influence. Some of you in this room may have been given wasta. One of the ways that you can use that influence is for the sake of the vulnerable. One of my regular prayers, especially when I'm so confused as to what to do, hearing another story of injustice, one of my regular prayers is that God would provide a Jesus-loving, faith-filled, UAE, law-savvy, Arabic-speaking advocate who can go to offices and workplaces and plead the cause of the vulnerable. And my prayer is that maybe in this room, God has gifted some of you with that experience, with that language, with that skill set, with that connection to do this. And that as a church, Redeemer Online would be able to say with Job, we put on righteousness and it clothed us. Justice was like a robe and a turban. We broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop the prey from his teeth. We can pursue justice. Third, we can respond by recognizing God's grace in and for others. And this is essential we plead for justice. We pray for justice. We trust that the God of the universe will do what is just. And then what do we do when the person we've been praying would experience justice, turns from their sins, and repent? Do we hold on? and we say, not that person. That person is one of them. Or do we recognize that every single one of us deserves hell? And so when we see the oppressor repent? Do we rejoice and celebrate? Do we recognize that we are also wicked and that we are saved not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of another? And so we should pray. It's not wrong to pray that God would punish the sins of the wicked, but we pray that God would punish the sins of the wicked at the cross of Christ by them taking refuge in Jesus or in hell. And finally, we wait upon the Lord. In verse 6, James says that the righteous man does not resist. And the reason is because he is following Jesus' words to turn the other cheek. He is recognizing that he will not take vengeance in his own hands. He is waiting upon the Lord. So we wait. We cry out, How long, O Lord? But we know that because of the cross of Christ, no matter how bad your suffering is in this life, if you are in Christ Jesus, it is as close to hell as you will ever experience. And no matter how good your life is in this life, 
If you are not in, clo- in Christ Jesus, it is as close to heaven as you will ever experience. The God of the universe will do what is just. And we who are in Christ have found a refuge that we can hide out the storm and be safe. And so we sing and we wait. James gives hard words, and he gives hard words for all of our good. That we can see the amazing grace of God, that we are spared from these words that James gives. And this is available for the most oppressive rich, as well as for all of us. Lord, we thank you for the mercy and grace that we have experienced in Christ Jesus. Texts like this, Lord, just remind us over and over again of how little we deserve it. Jesus, we praise you that at the cross you bore our sins upon your shoulders. You were made sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So as we sing of the cross, help us to sing with faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.